Hey, I'm Daryl Etherington, and I'm here with my co-host and best buddy... Jordan Crook, a.k.a. Daryl's best friend. <laughs> We've got a brand new show for you from TechCrunch. This is Found, and it's a podcast all about founders. So every week we host a different founder, and they tell us all about the challenges, the highs, the lows, the excitement of building their own company, including stuff like raising money from VCs, figuring out when to pivot, and making the toughest decisions that you have to make, like shutting down entire product lines. Jordan, what did you think about these conversations that we've been having with founders so far? Yeah, I mean, I've been talking to founders for the last 10 years, writing for TechCrunch. I think what's cool is finally, a lot of those conversations are going to get to translate and our audience is going to hear them instead of the 10% that they usually get on a podcast. They're very honest, a lot of candor, um, and it's been really interesting and rewarding for me. So without further ado, let's get into the show. Our first guest is Aman Abuzaid. She is the founder of Incredible Health, which is a platform for hiring uh, medical professionals and specifically nurses in the U.S. We had a chat with Iman all about, you know, why was this thing even needed to begin with? Uh, how did she set about creating it? How did her background, she's a medical doctor, influence her building of the business? And, you know, how has kind of the past year and particularly the COVID-19 pandemic affected the trajectory of her startup? Jordan, what did you think about our, our conversation with Iman? I felt like I learned a lot. Like you, I think you feel like you get a uh, an idea of what's going on in the healthcare industry, especially in the last year where there's so much talk about it. But I, I mean, the fact that there's such a shortage of nurses blew my mind and kind of the the rigmarole that they have to go through to get a new job and how that churn and and turnover affects the entire industry has, was eye opening to me. Yeah, for sure. And and Iman is really focused on kind of the entire career experience of nurses and, you know, ensuring that they have positive experiences and are supported throughout. And she also takes this very sort of procedural, diligent approach uh, as a founder, and that'll come across. Uh, you'll hear from her in the conversation we have. All right. So let's go ahead and get into our chat with Iman. And uh, we hope you enjoy the episode. Iman, it's so great to have you here. This is uh, a brand new show for us, and we're really excited for you to be one of the first guests. I think we could just get right into it. And, and if you could tell us a bit about sort of how you started uh, Incredible Health and, and why you did and kind of, you know, what that process was like for you. So the year is 2017. And... Uh... Ooh, really <laughs> the stage. I like this. Oh, my God. That feels so good, though. Say that again. The year is 2017. The year is 2017. <laughs> um, and so at this point, you know, I'm, I'm in... So my, by background, I'm an MD. And a lot of my family members and friends are doctors and surgeons, and they were often complaining about understaffing. At the same time, my co-founder and CTO, uh, Rome Portlock, who's a software engineer, went to MIT, all of that stuff, his, his siblings, uh, a lot of his family members are nurses. And they were saying, even though I'm experienced and I'm qualified, and it still takes me at least two, three months to get my next job, right? Like, I apply to 10, 15 places. I usually never hear back. If I hear back, it takes months. And we're like, okay, this doesn't make any sense, right? Because the U.S. has a huge shortage of healthcare workers, nurses and, and others, right? And, 
Yeah, it's so in demand. You'd think you could just walk up to a hospital and be like, here's the paperwork, let it, me in. Exactly. Right? But what we discovered is it's not at all easy. <laughs> and, you know, it's the, the processes, the tools, the technology is completely outdated. It hasn't changed since the early 90s, which is, which is crazy because healthcare is the biggest labor sector in the U.S. today by number of workers. Uh, and it's also uh, the labor sector that suffers from the biggest shortages, too. To put it in context, the nursing shortage is three times bigger than the software engineering shortage. Wow. Wow. That's, I mean, for us, especially like Jordan and I, you know, we hear yeah, about that all the time. That. And because engineers are like oil, right? For, for most tech companies. And it's like so valuable, so hard to come by, so expensive. So that really does put it in context. I think like it's, that's wild. Yeah. So we, we figure there just has to be a better way. Like there just, there has to be a better way for these two parties to meet. Uh, and so we, to put it in infomercial terms, yeah, yeah, I know, right? I was about to be like, "There's gotta be a exactly." <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we built this career marketplace for healthcare workers called Incredible Health. And uh, what that means is hospitals and health systems use our software to hire nurses in permanent roles in 20 days or less. And it is now the fastest-growing uh, venture-backed career marketplace for healthcare workers in the U.S. today. And there's three key things we did. Like the first is that the employers apply to the talent instead of the other way around. Uh, the second thing we did is the, we've automated a lot of the screening of the talent um, through lots of integrations with other databases. And so we're able to serve up very high quality talent at all times. And the third thing is we built these custom uh, matching algorithms. So it's a very personalized experience for both sides of the platform. And really it's just the, the results of that has been hiring happens in 20 days or less. I think during the pandemic, it accelerated to 12 days um, or less. It normally takes 80, 90 days to fill a permanent experienced nurse position. So you you talked about the, the different things you did to kind of make that easier, but how did you identify those as the problem points to begin with? Was it mostly your personal experience or was it just, you, you know, you, you mentioned that you had uh, your co-founder had siblings. So obviously you're talking to a lot of folks in the industry. Yeah, um, you know, we, we did go through a pretty robust like ideation process uh, in order to identify these problems, like had a really strong understanding of the market. Like I, I honestly would like call up friends on Wall Street. I went to Wharton for business school, so I have friends on Wall Street. So I'd call, call them up and ask them for their like market research reports on, on this industry. So really had a great understanding of the market. And then certainly talking to, talking to customers, right? So whether it's nurses or hospital executives and trying to understand their challenges. Now, for the hospital executives, it was really interesting, right? Because they uh, they run businesses that are very low margin. Hospitals are usually low margin businesses, and when you're understaffed and you don't have enough healthcare workers and or clinicians, you're effectively spending on overtime or on contract workers. Uh, overtime usually costs at least one and a half times more than a regular permanent worker, and a contract worker costs two x. And during the pandemic, it actually costs three x, four x more. Than a, than a regular uh, permanent worker. And so they're under a lot of pressure to really get these costs down. And, and they're also responsible for driving high quality care, right? So when you're understaffed, the, your quality of care goes down. So like you had the, the double threat of be, having that business background and then also being an MD. Like, are, are, it seems like you're uniquely timeline? able to do it, right? And yeah, let's yeah, talk like about what, that too. How, how do, like you are a doctor who went to Wharton Business School? Like what? <laughs> <laughs> okay, overachiever, but like what, what, what order did you do those things in? Yeah, so um, I went to medical school first, decided not to do residency, 
uh, when I graduate, when I finish med school, uh, went in, went into management consulting first. Actually, I worked at Booz Allen at McKinsey, doing hospital operations and strategy. Did that for a couple years, and then uh, did my MBA at Wharton. Then moved to the Bay Area. Um, so I moved to the Bay Area, gosh, seven years ago, um, and that's really when I got into health, in, into technology and software and startups. So I joined as like an early employee at an early stage healthcare technology company. That's really where I learned to work with engineers and designers and data scientists and so on. I, I led product there. And that's where I grew a lot of those skills. Did that for a few years before deciding to found Incredible Health. So you're just proving me right, essentially. Yeah. So you've achieved far too much. <laughs> yeah, I know. It would be enjoyable both sitting here doing the math. We're like, what did we get done in that no. span of time? No, and you guys are like... <laughs> Badass reporters at TechCrunch, right? <laughs> uh, that's why we brought it up. We wanted you to just <laughs> us. Thank you. I feel better now. I'm go kiss so my diploma. When you moved to San Francisco, you didn't have it in your head at that time to do the 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 startup thing, or you? What was the thinking yeah, there? I guess? Actually, starting starting a company like a high you know high growth company was something I've wanted to do actually for a long time, like probably since my time in medical school, but like. Thing, the thing with a goal like that, and, and sorry, the reason I had that goal is like both my grandfathers were entrepreneurs and I just have this belief and it's an opinion, right? That the epitome of what you can do with a career in business is to start your own company. And that's just like a value that I had in my head. Um, but the path to get there is not like that straightforward, right? Because I, I believe there's a certain set of skills that are really helpful <laughs> that I wanted to collect, right? Before founding my own company. And there's a certain network and, or number of people or number of people or specific types of people that I wanted to meet before starting a company. For example, my, you know, software engineers, right? My co-founder, Rome, like, you know, uh, starting a company with a technical co-founder that's a software company is a lot easier, right? So, yeah. Yes. <laughs> how did you, so how did you connect up with Rome there? We actually worked as employees at that early stage healthcare technology company. So he's an engineering lead and I was a product lead. What did you like when you were working there? I feel like that is like the clear lead up to you going and founding your own company. I don't need to know what company it is, although I'm sure it's Googleable. What what did you what did you say like, okay, these are the pieces I'm gonna keep and these are the pieces I'm definitely gonna do differently, right? Yeah. When, when I launch my own company. Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of that actually. So this the key skills that I kept is like how to build product, how to work with a team to build a, a product in healthcare, right? Because when it comes to software products and healthcare, it's just you have to be at least 10x differentiated. Like whatever you create has to be at least 10x better than what's already out there. Cause that's the only way you can really cut through the noise and regulation and restrictions and, you know, all the headache that is the healthcare industry. Right. Um, you have to come up with something really good. So that's a huge takeaway uh, that I got from that. And then um, the, the other thing is I, you know, learned a lot about what to do and what not to do when you're constructing your board and your investors um, and how, how, thoughtful and careful you need to be about which investors you involve and who joins your board. Because, uh, you know, I saw it done well. I also saw it not done so well. And there were a lot of lessons learned there. Like, okay, when I start my own company, I'm going to try to avoid those errors and those mistakes. They're, they're, those are lessons I think you have to, those, like, it seems like most people learn them the hard way, right? By firsthand experience. But it's nice that you were able to kind of like observe it. But yeah, it's certain. What, did, what were you asking there? I just wanted to know, like, what were they? Because like, you know, we have a... 
founders are listening to this pod- podcast called Found. You said you notice like errors in in how people build a board or like how they identify the right investors and like who to take money from. Like, I, I it's a question that fascinates me because you get in in such a like short term mindset sometimes when starting a company, right? Like you just have to get through today. Like I just have to get through this week. I just like have to get the check because we're running out of runway or whatever. And you like stop thinking about the fact that these relationships last like seven, 10, 12 years, right? Like it's the person you're going to have to answer the phone for regularly. And so I'm just curious, like how you, from, from learning at that first company, like how did you, what kind of criteria did you use to choose investors? Yeah, right. Like, yeah, absolutely. So th- there was there was a, a lot of learnings, lots of several different criteria that that matters a lot. Um, one is uh, making sure that the investor is the right fit for you, personal like personality wise, as well as a fit for the company, right? So, I uh, I tend to gear towards investors that are very high integrity. I prefer for former operators. Certainly, we're running a marketplace business, so love marketplace experience and honestly i have a very strong bias for investors in the bay area because investors in the bay area are uh they have a, quite a lot of experience in internet and software companies you know 20 plus years in some cases and uh they're very risk taking when it comes to investors who are compared to investors who are not in the bay area um and uh so that's just like my opinion bias right hmm. That's interesting because you don't think about the risk aversion factor because like I think people think that it's like a, an element of concentration or like or like the other things you mentioned. I think those have come up to mind a lot more like people have experience, more experience in software if they're in their area. But the risk appetite is a big, big factor. And I think you're right. Like it's, it seems like, yes, like people in the in the valley are, are much less risk averse than people outside of it just because they're so frequently exposed to it. And I've seen so many cycles. Right? That's one of the first times I've heard it stated so plainly too, right? Because you always the the common thing that you always hear about Silicon Valley is like, oh, you could take 20 meetings in a day because they're literally all on Sand Hill Road. Um, and that makes sense. And that's why I would move my business out there because there's just so many of them. And they're all right in the same place. But it does make a lot of sense that they'd be less risk averse than than other geographically located VCs. Yeah, absolutely. And what about and then, the actual process? Yeah, and so then of fundraising. So the process. So so one other thing is like I'm really big on references when it comes to investors, and the only references that truly matter are the other founders and CEOs, right? Like that's it. <laughs> um, and so so if those references are not very very strong, then you probably shouldn't go with that investor, right? So. That's another good point. And another like sort of like basic fundamental thing that probably a lot of people get wrong, but it's like, no, like you can ask anybody you want. Those are the people that matter. You could ask me and Jordan. We probably think tons of investors are great people to talk to. They might be terrible. investors. <laughs> we don't know. Right? right. Well, in terms of like, maybe not the investments they make, but like how they, you know, manage their portfolio companies yeah, and, and how they, advise them. Exactly. And how they interact with the founders and so on. Yeah. Well, and it's the same thing too, is like when you, first meet someone and you're like oh you're great because like you're in the like dating period you know and then you're like oh actually you're toxic um you know it's different once the paperwork's signed and it's hard to know that unless you have references yeah and and, and you're you're right jordan you have to take a long-term vision on this like it's this isn't you're with them for 10 years so you better make sure that they're, they're the right people for you don't you think it's problematic how often that analogy comes up <laughs> like the dating analogy but i guess it just seems so appropriate but we you know we hear it a lot jordan and it's like 
I get, but it, there's no other relationship that it really compares quite as much to because of the, the, the duration of it and you know like the, the well, and also the financial like the you are financially bound yes, like that's right are, you're linked up like you you could have your best friend in the world but you don't share a checking account not that you share a checking account with an investor but like you literally your personal and professional finances are tied up with another human being the only time that really ever happens is in marriage right so like i think that analogy isn't just about longevity it's about like tying your fate together yeah. in a way that's so intense exactly. you can't, you you can't know, get you money. can't get rid of your investors you can get rid of customers you can get rid of employees you can get rid of you know all kinds all kinds of people you cannot get rid of the investors they're they with you i i wanted to know about because it's also a, a something we're asked frequently from founders is like just how do i do it it seems so inscrutable from the outside right like how does successful uh funding happen yeah. So, you know, I, I'd raised a seed round of a couple of million dollars in, in 2017, led by uh, Obvious Ventures. And that was an oversubscribed round when we were fortunate enough to be selective about who we go with. And then raised a $15 million Series A in 2019, which, again, you know, I had term sheets from the top three VCs in the world and was able to be very selective about who we go with. Ultimately, went with Jeff Jordan and Andreessen Horowitz. And, you know, so the, 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 the thing with fundraising, there's two, there's, two, there's two critical areas that you have to get really right. And that's the content and the process. Uh, in terms of process, like, uh, you know, it starts with selecting who, who's your target list, right? Like back to like, who's going to be the right fit for you? Mark, you know, in our case, two-sided marketplace experience, Bay Area, you know, has done it before, former operator, all that stuff, right? And Good reviews, I Exactly. Assume. Great references and so on, right? <laughs> Stellar references. <laughs> but the reference stage, you can actually, in, from a process standpoint, you, can, you could potentially punt that to the end, you know, when you're trying to decide. Yeah. And uh, and then it's important to like sequence the the, the, the order of, of which you're pitching them to. Right. So uh, start with your, you know, their tier three, the people you don't. Yeah. You know, you don't, I love that. Yeah. You get some practices. Oh, safety schools first. Yeah. <laughs> and end with a tier one. Right. And that's because, you know, it's, it's similar to getting a job. Right. Like when you're interviewing for jobs, you, you go for the companies that you don't really care about that much first. Right. And then and then you, you have your Maybe you do. At the end. Right. Uh, Jordan just accidentally got a job and has it now. Literally for ten years. Oh my god, it never ends the cycle. So the, the reason I like that is like it's like you know you're practicing, right? And you, you want to be at peak pitch performance by the end, right? So one of my questions is because I actually I was talking to um, Isaac Oates, the JustWorks CEO, just yesterday. And one of the things that he said that I found interesting was like, you build the pitch around you and the brand and what what you're building and like, it will attract the right investors. So I'm wondering when you say like you, you, you get your pitch practice in, like, does that mean you're like tweaking the deck and you're tweaking the pitch? Or does that just mean like you've run it enough times to just freaking nail no, it you're, like you're what, tweaking every yeah it? every meeting is a learning opportunity even if they say no right <laughs> like and, and it's an opportunity to improve your story improve your deck whatever it is right uh and so it's just important to go in with that mindset like you're not just trying to sell 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 you're trying to also learn <laughs> and and then just keep improving that way and then so then the next piece is the content right so what you're saying matters a ton right and and this is an area that that i had to spend a lot of time just getting better on right so um when explaining the vision and the market uh, for incredible health, it was in critical to come across as very ambitious, which is what we are, right? So 
we are incredible health is a career marketplace for healthcare workers and we're building the category defining market leading company in healthcare labor right that sounds way bigger and way more ambitious than saying like oh we're building two sided marketplace we're going to make some money you know like <laughs> Um, at the end of the day, especially when it comes to Bay Area investors, like they are looking to build legendary companies, category defining companies. And so you, you, you got to match that level of ambition. Um, and that's probably. But aren't they just doing that because they like the money that comes out the other side? Or are they actually like that's really you need to put it in their brains like, no, this is going to be world changing and you're going to be. So part those, of are two, it. those two things are highly correlated. Right. If you're building if, if the company ends up becoming category defining and market leading, the money will come. Right. So they're they're very ambitious and they have to do because of you know the way their financials work. Right. So uh, as a as a founder who's who's seeking venture capital, you better be equally ambitious. Right. right. Is, there, is there like any balance that you have to strike with humility, too? Because I, I've also heard from investors like, yeah, we want to see. Don't come to me with a pitch deck if there isn't a B in your TAM slide. Right. Obviously. But then I need to know that you could make money on this market right now and how that could easily turn into, you know, this this giant big bubble of the, you know, the double digit triple digit billion, maybe trillion, um, and like balance. Yeah, exactly. So the content of the deck, you know, you're, 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 you're painting a big vision, a big market, you know, what you, what you're doing basically over the next 10 years. Right. Then, then you got to shift to like, okay, what's reality today, right? What's your market today? What, which narrow segments are you starting with? So for example, and, and for incredible health, like we are starting with nurses and acute care hospitals. Um, by the time I was reading this, raising the seat, the series a, you know, we were already serving over 150 hospitals. Now it's, you know, over 350 hospitals that we work with um, today and um, highlighting some of the, 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 the deals basically we've already closed. And, 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 and you really have to lay, lay out the segmentation very clearly. Like, of course, after nurses, we want to do doctors and physical therapists and pharmacists and so on, right? After acute care hospitals, we want to do surgical centers and urgent care and so on. So that's, like, that's over the course of 10 years. But like, we're very focused on these markets today and making progress here. Yeah, I think that's like often a tension, right? And people have a hard time resolving it because you hear all the time, focus, focus, focus. But then you also need that like, uh, but when we get here, we rule the world, right? So it's it's kind of like people struggle with like, how do we do that? And how much do you weight that? Especially in maybe like a seed stage deck, right? Where a lot of it is, there's nothing really concrete. You're just kind of like, I got to sell you this idea and it's going to be great. So you know, how did that change, I guess, from your from your seed to your series A? And how did you balance the sort of concrete it, elements and the, the Yeah, it honestly didn't change that much between the seed and series A in terms of the long in term the traction did, of course, but not the not the long term vision. And and I think I think founders should have a very clear idea of what they want to do over the course of ten years. Because at, at the end of the day, like that's that's your guiding light. Like that's the mission of your company, right? Like our, our vision is to help healthcare professionals live better lives. The mission is to help them find and do their best work. Like that's the ultimate goal, right? And of course you have to lay out a clear plan for how to get there, but um, that should be guiding a lot of your decision-making. Well, I was going to ask about specifics around incredible health. Like I, cause like, I know we're, we're painting it pretty generally right now, but we, you've told me before and I find it like super interesting how you define those two things, like where you are now and then your ultimate vision. Like you mentioned, like making life better for healthcare professionals everywhere, but like you have such a, a big vision of like what that includes. And it's way beyond, I think like a lot of the stuff you're doing already. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, on the, on the talent side, you know, early days, we were just the place where a nurse finds his or her permanent job. Right. 
And what we've, we really evolved into becoming the place where a nurse finds, uh, manages their career, right? So we now offer things like free continuing education for every single nurse in the country so they can stay, which they need to stay compliant with their uh, licenses. And they used to pay, you know, $250 million out of pocket is spent by nurses every year on continuing education. And we're like, forget it. Let's, let's give it to them for free, right? Um, and then, uh, you know, free salary estimators. We just launched a social network that's exclusively for nurses so they can give each other advice. This is, a, this is a group, especially over the last 12 months, that has gone through quite a lot of fatigue and burnout and struggle, right? And, and, and they are uh, very supportive of each other. And so we added features to support them with that. And so, we're, you know, we're going on this journey of really helping them manage their career, manage, manage their career over the course of their lifetimes, right? On the employer side, it's not enough to just be like, okay, here's here's some nurses, right? Um, we 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 provided like the pandemic hiring suite, which is like you know automated interview scheduling and uh, remote interviewing options and lots of lots of features that help them with their workflow software, right? We provide a whole set of data analytics that helps them continue continue to improve their internal hiring processes because we we are able to provide them with their you know benchmark competitor data because they're using our platform too, anonymized of course. And so it's it's really thinking through like really deeply for both sides of the marketplace like. What are, what are the additional value add things that we can provide um, that eventually enable us to own this entire market and, and, and deliver at least, at least a 10x you know, improvement on, on their lives today? Yeah, it's like it just really illustrates to me how you do that one very, you slice off the narrow thing and you say, this is like the immediate, very painful thing that we're going to go out and fix. And then you're like, but guess what? Like it evolves into this. And then it's not even as it's like at first it seems like, well, maybe your risk is you're a single touch point, but it's like, no, we're a continuous touch point on both sides throughout uh, the career cycle. Right. And, and yeah. It's Did great. it feel like very, fairly obvious when you were deciding like product iterations and like, okay, we're going to add this, we're going to like build this, we're going to, and as you kind of like piece the puzzle together, did it feel obvious in what order that should go? Or was that like a thing that took a lot of time and energy to figure out? Because sometimes, sometimes it can be fairly obvious, Am I right? Shaking like, your head, that's yeah, why we're all because people can't see this. I oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forget they can't see either. Everyone laughed at me when I said yeah. that, but I think in some, in some instances it is fairly obvious because you can't get to this until you've built this, this, yeah. and this, right? But right. like you're right. So look, the long term vision may be fixed, but all that detail below that absolutely not fixed squiggly lines <laughs> squiggly in between line, experimentation <laughs> all kinds of you know user research all kinds of all kinds of stuff you know and like honestly like it, at least 20 30 percent of the stuff that we do at incredible health fails right the experiments the whatever it is so uh and that that is what you're, but that's our job you know if you're an entrepreneur you're a founder you're supposed to be innovating right so there should be a lot of things that don't work what about like are there things that you were like, okay, we know exactly where we want our differentiators to be and to build something category defining, you essentially say like, okay, um, there is no playbook, but like on certain things there are like you run a two-sided marketplace. Like there are a lot of two-sided marketplaces out there. Like, are there certain things where you're like, we don't need to innovate at yeah, all. 100%. Like, let's use what works. Yeah. hundred percent. So for example, uh, the employer side of our business looks like a B2B business, right? We have a direct sales team. There's enterprise marketing that drives leads. Like, we don't need to like innovate on uh, how enterprise sales are done, right? Um, <laughs> whereas, whereas more on the talent side, right? Like there's a, there, which is a very much looks like a consumer company. There's a ton of innovation and we don't, the playbook is not clear on how, how it is we're going to get every single healthcare worker in the country on our platform eventually, right? Um, so, so yeah, there, you're absolutely right. There's some stuff that you don't really mess with. 
Like I'm not going to mess with a comp plan of a salesperson. Okay. <laughs> but I'm absolutely going to innovate on a product, on a software product. Yeah. yeah. And anything with a customer touch point, that makes sense. Cause it seems like it, historically, uh, you know, I don't know about healthcare specifically, but like a lot of enterprise tools, right. That's been the, the trend is like you build this thing and it works for the large enterprise side, but it doesn't work for any of the individual users because no one has been concerned about that. They've just concerned about the buyer in the enterprise. And then it's like, do what you will with the yeah. users. I don't give a shit. I'm off to the next a customer. Absolutely. And then there's also Jordan, to your point, like there's key learnings around uh, other two-sided marketplaces. So a key, a key thing when you're building a large two-sided marketplace is you need to stay fo pretty focused geographically, especially if there's a real life component to your marketplace, which we, we have that, right? So, you know, we started, when we started the company, we were only in the Bay Area, right? And then we expanded to LA. And now we're in, we're in eight states. We'll be in 13 states by the end of March. We'll be in 30 states by the end of the year. But it's like a very uh, almost regimented way of expanding to, because you have to make sure that you have liquidity, like enough supply and enough demand on the marketplace at all times to make sure it's an amazing experience for both, for everyone. Well, and like the fact that you're like what you're building tells me very much that you're very structured and detail oriented. The way you laid out how you go about fundraising tells me the same thing. And again, your resume says a lot about that as well. Like <laughs> one of the questions that I'm like that I like to ask founders and that really fascinates me is like you have to wear so many hats. Right. Like at any given time, you might be like talking to the board. You might be talking to your team. You might be talking to a customer. You might be talking to the sales team like you know, you might be focused on product or financials. Like it's just, you're like split personality almost. And like, how do you, do you organize that? Or is it like what comes, that's what hat I put on? Or do you say like on Mondays I do this and on Tuesdays I do this or in the morning I do this and in the afternoon I do this. Like, how do you, do you structure that? Yeah, it's not super, like, I mean, the way I think about it is uh, just keeping in mind that the job of a founder and CEO changes every few months, right? So what I did in our early days is very different in 2017 is different from what I'm doing, you know, in 2021. Um, and, and just recognizing that the other thing, the other thing tenant that I follow is like ruthless prioritization, right? At any given time, there's probably only two or three things that I should be doing that is really going to move us forward. Everything else either needs to be done by someone else or is just simply not going to get done. Um, and, and, and that, and that list of top two or top three things changes, you know, month to month or week to week. But how do you do your opportunity cost analysis and kind of like, you know, how do you, how do you, do you spend a lot of time looking back and trying to figure out if that was the right call when you make those prioritization decisions and asking for personal purposes, I need to better prioritization. <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm like, you know, I'm, I, I don't get it. We don't get it perfect all the time and you just have to keep getting better and better at it. Uh, but you know, by asking yourself the question, right. I asked myself the question, all right, what is the number one problem that we have right now? that I need to spend more time on, right? Um, or uh, what is both important and urgent that, that needs to get done right away? Um, right. And, and so like asking these questions at the beginning of the week, for example, or sometimes even in the beginning of the day, if it's a really, if it's, you know, there's a lot of activity happening. I feel like I can't complain about my day. <laughs> well, yeah, no, you started, Jordan started off the call. It was a rough day, I know personally, but also... Now you're at a place where you're like, never mind, it was fine. <laughs> Cause yeah, she, totally. Because she's like, here's my life, and I'm like, <laughs> Californian complaining about the weather. But Iman, like, I did want to ask about specifically because you talk about how your job changes every two months or whatever, right? And that's like, you often hear that, especially in like high growth companies and, and tech startups. But has it been specifically in COVID with being a healthcare company? Like, that must have been 
multiplied even further, right? Like, how do you deal with that kind of hyper growth in a crisis environment? How do you keep your cool in something like that? Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. The pandemic was very impactful on our business. I mean, it accelerated the business, but it also had some pretty big challenges because both sides of our marketplace are deeply impacted by the pandemic. Like, you know, the nurse, we had nurses who were getting sick from COVID. We had nurses on our platform who actually passed away from COVID, like 4,000 nurses in the U.S. so far have passed away from COVID, which is awful, right? And then and then the hospital executives are just, the pandemic is a huge operational challenge. And they're also dealing with employees getting unwell too. So it was, um, you know, the first thing was just like empathy for, for all our users, right? And um, the other thing we did is just like, okay, what can we do to be the most helpful, right? Uh, in, in a crisis like this. And that is why we prioritize things like the pandemic hiring suite for the employers, right? And okay, we have to rapidly shift. They're shifting a lot of their operations because in because of the pandemic. Like we need to add things. We need to automate interview scheduling. We need to do remote interviews. We need to get them, the, 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 the demand for ICU nurses is like massive, like critical care nurses is massive. We need to like accelerate that. Like, so we, we did change the order of some of the things in our roadmap to, to meet their, to meet the demand there. And then on the nurse side, so really prioritize anything that helped them with their mental health and their fatigue, right? So for example, the um, incredible health nurse community, it, we launched that very rapidly uh, in order for them to be able to support each other. We also have a mental health journal where they're able to track, you know, how they're feeling each day. Cause that's proven there's tons of academic research that shows that that alleviates fatigue and, 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 and burnout. So can I ask, like, as you, you know, the pandemic strikes and you say like, okay, here's our roadmap and like, here are all the ways we're going to shift it. Your team, the people building these products and going through the shift as well are also under an insane amount of stress and like worried about their own. We, we all were like, let's just be real. Everybody was, we were all like, oh, hanging by a thread. Um, like, how do you like lead a team, particularly like you have someone who's working on, this is all hypothetical, but you have someone who's working on something for a few months, they're ready to like launch it, or they're about to launch it, or maybe they're a few weeks away. And you're like, no, 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 stop, work on this other thing. How do you lead a team through this kind of crisis? How did you like talk to them? How did you get buy-in and like, you know, really make sure that they were like motivated and happy and fulfilled as everything's kind of up in the air and changing so quickly. Yeah, there are a couple areas that I like had to tackle like right away to help with that. So first is communication. The second is like just tack like, there's a, a couple very many logistical things. On the communication piece is like we increase the frequencies of our of the one on ones, right? We increase the frequency of all hands. Because like especially and we also went fully remote, right? So in a situation like that, like I, we have to over communicate, not under communicate. You know, we shifted to more documentation, like all of these things uh, that help that helped us be productive during this time. And then the other thing is just the empathy, right? Like I have people on the team who have who, uh, employees on the team who, you know, have very young kids at home, right? Or who are in an apartment with a bunch of roommates and it's pretty uncomfortable. And just like acknowledging, like, hey, like it's okay, like this, is, like it's don't worry about like showing up on a Zoom call with your kids around and like. Like it's fine. Like don't worry about it, right? So just making sure that people feel comfortable and and you know like it's not it's not a ding against them or anything. You know, like we're all very understanding here. And then like tactically speaking, from a logistics standpoint, we added a work from home stipend because you know people needed to get their nice fancy set setups. I mean, I don't think anyone has a setup as good as Daryl's. 
No one does. No one on the planet does. That, that's not fiscally responsible. Gamers. You shouldn't. You shouldn't allow that at a large enterprise. Uh, Earl's like, here's my paycheck, yeah. BNA. And like, we're we're very uh, diligent now on like people taking PTO because what 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 ended up happening is people took a lot less vacation, right? Um, during this pandemic, so we're just like yeah. big on that as well. So these are just like a couple of a few examples of just like man, you know, managing a team and supporting a team during during this crisis. Yeah, I think I, this is totally unrelated, but Jordan mentioned it earlier, and I did want to go back to it because I am curious about um, uh, pricing. Like any time that that the business involves a, a the SaaS component, right? Like I'm curious about how you arrived at pricing and how you decided uh, who pays the product. You know, especially in a double-ended marketplace, and and why and when and and how you went through all of that. Yeah, so there was there was a lot of. So there was a philosophical component to our pricing in that, like, this is always going to be free for nurses. All products right. will be free right. for nurses. Um, and it was, All products. Yeah. Okay. So there's never going to be a, a, a paid for no. thing from the nurse. No, no plans to do that. Well, and, right. and that. And that's a philosophical thing. And just because it just aligns best with our mission of helping healthcare workers um, live, live better lives. Um, the the mm-hmm. other uh, component to it is that honestly, there was a lot of iteration, iteration on the business model in the early days. It's pretty, it's, mm-hmm. it's in good shape now, but like, it wasn't super clear. Should this be subscription? Should this be a consumption based subscription? Should it be uh, transactions? I don't know. Like there's, there's always like the whole world of business models. And is it undervalued or overvalued yeah. too? Like you don't, right. even if you can figure out like which mechanism you want to use, you don't like, what's the number? Yeah. Like it's so hard, exactly. right? Exactly. And I, I think um, like a, a lot of founders have to pay, you have to pay so much attention to your business model, especially in healthcare, you know, like, in, in healthcare, your business model can make or break you. Uh, you know, like you probably, you see, we see a lot of very successful healthcare technology companies whose products and services are like, okay, right? But they nail the business model because yeah. what matters in healthcare is who pays and who pays is super convoluted, right? Like it's not always the patients. Sometimes it's the providers. Sometimes it's the payers. Sometimes it's the employers. It's like super crazy. Right. And so like, if you can, if, as long as you can figure out how you're going to get, how, what the business model is and how you're going to get paid, you, and you nail that, like that is an absolute requirement if you're operating in a software company in the healthcare industry. Wow. Yeah. Like X product considerations, X anything else. It's like, just get the yeah. pricing. Right. And we see the so, opposite yeah. too. We see beautiful products that look amazing yep. and it's an amazing service, but the company doesn't work because of this model. This model sucked. Right. So. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. Cause I, I, what I'll share this anecdote. I won't name the company. That's nice of you. <laughs> <laughs> you look like but, you're still thinking of it. I'm so still thinking about I, it. I, want, I'm like, I really want trouble you to, while I get in. No, um, I want to protect them. But I know, uh, no, 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 don't worry about it. It's not a risk for, for any, uh, founders or anything it's personal risk but uh i know of companies where it's like they've there's not as much um uh sensitivity around pricing there and they've essentially just taken a pricing model that they put on the web page when they were very young and kept it up the entire time (laughs) without any kind of like investigation into whether this is the right one right like it has worked and perhaps it has worked to great tremendous effect so there's never been any experimentation around um changing it one way or another but it sounds like for you that was a necessary ingredient so so early on in the process but like how how did you do your testing like you priced and then go out and then be like oh okay no (laughs) um it was uh, i i honestly it wasn't the most methodical of approaches so um 
At least it wasn't a pressure. That's what I'm saying. Because some some places are like. <laughs> you get a lot of advice on it, of course, right? Like from your board, from your board right. members or for other operators, so on. You investigate what the competition is doing. You 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 do chat with your customers about pricing and so on. But what you're really ultimately looking for for in business model is customer behavior, right? So we right. noticed that as our business model, as we were experimenting with different types of business models, the engagement on the platform would change, right? And um, you know, does the customer have, does the employer in our case have skin in the game or not? Right. Um, mm. and, and so these are all connected. And then the other thing is, you know, I mentioned earlier about how business model matters a ton when you're operating in the healthcare industry, it's also operating. It's also critical when you're operating a high growth startup, right? Because, you know, if you have strong unit economics, that means you can invest, uh, all the profit you make per unit into growth. If you have very strong cash flow, that means you can, and you're, you're and you're collecting up front like that cash can be reinvested back into growth which means you can rely on external capital less right so that it's like it's such a fundamental part of running a business that when i when i do see founders that aren't paying attention to it and are like oh, we'll figure it out later we're just trying to nail the product i'm like no what are you talking about it's like so critical <laughs> <laughs> well and yeah. it's interesting to talk about like strong unit economics because i think a lot of people think of price as something a lever they can pull for growth like if our price is lower right we can grow because more people will get it. But like in reality, you have to think of profit from your unit economics as a way to grow. And you also have to think about like engagement. Like you said, I thought that was an interesting bit where you're like, oh, based on our business model, it's not just like how many new new clients we get. It's like the way that our existing clients will behave and, and whether or not they'll attract the other side of the market. Exactly. I mean, lower pricing can also lead to lower engagement. Yeah, because yeah, people don't feel invested, right? It's like, why do I even have this? Yeah. So, what do you, do you think? Is it an evolving thing? Like, do you think about pricing continuously, especially as you develop new features and bring new stuff on? I the mean, platform? always. It's a forever thing. Yeah. <laughs> Business model yeah. can be. I mean, we're it's in pretty good shape now, right? Uh, but you know, it, I'm sure this is not the final state. Okay. And so, like, how? But like, what? The, I, I'm going to nail down that question even more. Like, so it's in good shape now. What does that mean? Like, in a month, are you like, oh, I don't know, or like, you oh. don't really know. You're going to oh, see oh, no, until no. it like starts itching again. <laughs> way, like, what? The way, what? The way, um, the way I, the way I have confidence that it's working well now is that employers are very engaged. We have a hundred percent. Like, our retention is amazing on the employer side, right? Like, uh, they customers don't churn. They're happy with the product. Um, and the d deals, you know, new contracts and as new employers are joining very consistently, right? And, and in a rapid sales cycle. So that's what, that, that's what indicates that, okay, the, not just the product, but even the business model is resonating uh, with, the, with, with this group of customers and they're renewing and they're upselling, and, you know, they're, they're using us more and so on. Um, but, you know, things shift, right? Like yeah. product development, for yeah, example. Well, even external factors, are, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. What about, uh, this is just a, a future focused question, but what about other areas? Because obviously, you know, other industries have very similar problems uh, with hiring and retention. And, and like, do you ever envision a incredible accountants or anything yeah. like that? Or? No, I, th I think we're going to stay, stay on healthcare. I mean, healthcare is just not sexy. Yeah, like there's, there's $3.3 trillion spent in healthcare every year in the U.S. alone. And Half of that, like $1.6 trillion of that is going to the labor in healthcare, you know, and like, it's just, it's just massive. And I, we don't, I don't think we need to leave healthcare to turn this into a huge business or to achieve our, our vision and our mission. Yeah. Right. Geez, Daryl. I wasn't saying. 
It's a fair question. <laughs> what about other countries? Like, how about Canada here? We have, you know, we could use some help. <laughs> Eventually, yeah. Uh, our issue is the economics are so different that usually, like, there's no incentives, especially in the healthcare space. Every I talk to a lot of people, and they're like, it "Doesn't work like that way over there." So I don't know. The labor market is probably different, but yeah. I'm almost afraid of asking this question. But like, how does like do you do you have do you spend a lot of time like thinking about like regulatory changes, especially like considering everything that's happened in the last like ten years here? Does that make a difference? Yeah. Like, I don't. It, so it it makes it doesn't make too much of a difference because the, the regardless of what policies are in place it's the labor market yeah, it's exactly. not like at the end of the day yeah. our demand for healthcare keeps going up our populations are aging even in, including canada <laughs> every country right yes. <laughs> and um we just simply do not have enough workers locally nationally and, and globally honestly so ev every country is dealing with a healthcare uh, shortage so regardless of what your health system is and how it works and the, the regulations and the policies and who's who's the president and so on is irrelevant the demographic changes trump all of that yeah. I bet the investors loved that part where they're just like, oh, a health right. tech company that we don't have to worry about regulation. <laughs> <laughs> now, 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 there is some regulation we do have to worry about. We, we are working with a regulated profession, right? These are licensed. Right, right of course. Yeah, it's not like so, just like easy. Yeah, easy there's some areas we need to remain compliant, but it's not, um, it's not as intense as some other healthcare companies. Yeah. And you mentioned like keeping your um, your specialties up to date and stuff Absolutely. like that, right? And then so that's stuff you can help with and, and actually is a benefit to the Yeah, and keeping right? the licenses up to date and so on, yeah. I did have another question, but now I'm blanking on it. My uh, bad. I'll take the blame for that one. Jordan, it's totally your fault. Or it's because I got distracted by Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Every damn day. It's all I think about is Canada. It is weirdly what I think about a lot of the time because I work with only yeah. American colleagues. I I did want to say something just I, I uh, just about the fund the, the fundraising part made me a little a yeah. little nervous right because there's there's probably many different people listening to this venture capital is not the only way to finance your business okay just like it is in less than one percent of companies you you know get venture need venture capital right and you can well that actually reminded me what I wanted to ask you about which was like how did you make the call that like this is definitely a venture backable business as opposed to like a regular growth curve business and or something that we could fund through revenue right because you had revenue basically yeah. out the gate and you had a technical co-founder like so you like theoretically could build something bare bones and like start with one hospital and like kind of just go it all comes down to ambition right so we wanted to I had said okay I'm dedicating my 30s to incredible health and then 10 years to incredible health right at least and uh and i want to build something category defining market leading and so uh when you when you have an ambition like that raising capital helps so it all comes down to what you want to do personally with your business if, if you're like okay i just want to live off my business and 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 that's it right like i'm not trying to transform industries or anything like that i'm just trying to pay my bills and that and no of course don't go for venture capital yeah, for no, sure. No, that will not work out well for you if you do that. In that not case. only will you not get that funding, yeah. <laughs> but if you do, it's going to be even exactly. worse. <laughs> Where are my returns? What are you talking about? I just wanted a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just paying Con Ed over here. Chill out. Uh, that's great. Thanks so much. I, you know, it's great to talk to you. I was, we had a great initial conversation and an uh, even more fun second conversation here. And I'm sure we'll have more in the future. Um, yeah, I really, really appreciate you sharing all that with us. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Very, very excited for this, for this podcast. 
So that wraps up our conversation with Iman. It really is, I'm not saying this to be a punny, but it's an incredible story about, uh, you know, how she... An incredible woman. <laughs> from an incredible woman. Truly, truly accurate. Yeah. Um, well, a lot of the stuff has, has been COVID-19 pandemic specific that she was talking about. A lot of it is going to apply, you know, forever in the healthcare industry. And hopefully they continue to make big changes because I think the time is now for that. And thanks for, for joining us here on Found. We can be found again. Great, great name. Found, Just... found, found. <laughs> uh, on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, that includes Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever app you use. If you like what you heard, please go ahead and review us in iTunes. It really helps, especially if you leave us the maximum of stars. I just forgot how many stars. Is it's maximum. five. I can co- oh, totally good. confirm. Yeah, five of them would, would do the trick across the board. So that's how many you want to do. The other ones are not really options. Don't just ignore those and go just, straight to five. Yeah, five only. Thank you. Yes. And, and you can also email us at found at techcrunch.com if you have suggestions for future guests or any feedback. Uh, we always love to hear it. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch News Editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Managing Editor Jordan Crook. We are produced and mixed by Yashad Kulkarni, and TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>